0: Professor Epstein, or Epstein is the product of a mixed marriage between science, science of Slonimer and Lubavitcher Hasidim and Romanian socialists. And he grew up rather confused but happy in Brooklyn, New York, where we'll be going on our trip in May. We're going back to Brooklyn. Uh, we're going to go to Williamsburg, I think, on this part of the trip. He is currently, tenuously, uh, a, a professor of religion at Vassar College, where he's been teaching since 1992 and was the first Director of Jewish Studies. Uh, okay. At Vassar, he teaches courses on medieval Christianity, religion, arts, and politics, and Jewish texts and sources. He's a graduate of Oberlin College, and received a PhD from Yale University, and did much of his graduate research at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's written numerous articles, and his prior book, The Medieval Haggadah Art Narrative and religion, Religious uh, Imagination, was selected by, by the London Times. Literary supplement is one of the best books of 2011. So you're on a roll. You're working on a new book? On Venice, right? You probably should do that since you spent a lot of time there in palazzos. During the 80s, Professor Epstein was director of the Hebrew Book and Manuscript Division of Sotheby's Judaica Department and continues to serve as a consultant to various libraries, auction houses, (coughs) museums, and private collections throughout the world. Um, So if you have any very valuable manuscripts you want to donate to CSP, you bring them in over the next few days. He will evaluate them. If there were something, then we'll take them. Actually, if you have something really valuable, they can show you, right? But it has to be really valuable. Okay. So with that, I'm waiting. I was trying to, you know, give us a little time because my wife is coming with the newest uh, CSP member, Ezra George Katz, But she's not here. So you may hear a baby come in and gurgle. That's Ezra. And uh, uh, if not, I'm sure he'll come to other programs. So if you come back, you will meet the newest CSP member. Uh, Let's see if I have I forgotten anything. I think that's it. We've got lots of great programs. We depend on you for our support. We're happy that Irene is here. We mentioned that. We're very happy that Mark did not get seriously injured in the the bus accident or when he flipped over the table, saying hi to um, Tony and Terry. Mark, will you please come over here and give us a good program? Thank you. Thank you all for coming out today on a Friday in July. Wow.
1: say it's impressive for Friday in July and um, but you always impress me it's just it's good to see familiar faces from the last time and um, I'm really of all the things that I do throughout the year I'm always happiest to be here I really um, feel that Ari has done something extraordinary in Orange County and you know he says it but it's his thing right of course you speak highly of your own thing but I'm telling you As somebody who's coming from the outside and has seen a lot and done a lot and been a lot of places, there is nothing like the CSP program any place in the world that I've been able to detect. And I've looked because I'm interested in speaking to interesting audiences about interesting things and not just giving them the same stuff that they've heard a million times. So I really think that um, uh, tremendous hakarasatov. uh acknowledgement is due to Ari uh, for this and, and, and also not only to Tony and Terry who have been incredibly um, wonderful being patrons of this but to all of you also for coming and participating and being and doing and you know it's not many New Yorkers who would say to themselves oh, maybe I'd like to move to Orange County someday, not because of the weather or the beach or the whatever, you know, but because there's a real sense of, I don't know, intellectual community that's, that's been forged here, and I'm really, really impressed. Um, Ari asked me to do some new stuff, stuff that I haven't talked about, and I picked a few topics, um, and you'll have to bear with me because uh, all this is fairly new to me to talk about. Um, In fact, I just want to start out anecdotally by saying that a few years ago I gave a sermon in London uh, at Lauderdale Road, uh, which is the Spanish and Portuguese Western Sephardic synagogue, um, the current synagogue, there's an older synagogue called Bevis Marks, which we'll get to. Um, Not from the pulpit because I am not a Sephardi, okay? So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a Sephardi, right? Um, some of you may know, some of your best friends might be Sephardim, some of you <laughs> may be Sephardim yourself. Um, usually when Ashkenazi Jews from New York or California or Israel refer to Sfaradim, they're referring to Eastern Sfaradim, Mizrahi Jews, people from Arab-speaking environments, people who are essentially Arab Jews. You know, to be an Arab is an ethnicity, so you can be a, a Muslim Arab, You can be a Christian Arab, you can be a Jewish Arab, right? So, Sfaradim from the East come from countries in which Arabic was spoken. But there's another group of Sfaradim, Sfaradim from the West, who were among those people who were expelled from Spain, did not end up in North Africa, did not end up in the Middle East, did not end up in Israel, but primarily went to Amsterdam and from thence to London and New York. And it is that group of Sfaradim people of Spanish origin that I want to talk about um, this morning. And they have a whole different sort of self-consciousness, self, um, uh, the story they tell of themselves is quite different. And they are the people who, centuries before Ashkenazi Jews came to America, founded American Jewish culture. So they're important in that way. Anyway, I'm in London and I'm speaking not from the pulpit, but from at the Kiddush, because Western Sephardim have an attitude about Ashkenazi Jews, uh, some of them, at least this congregation, which is that the pulpit is for Sephardic rabbis and not for Ashkenazi academics. In the synagogue, of course, I also did not rank sufficiently high enough in terms of my genetic makeup to be called to the Torah. And in the Spanish and Portuguese rite, when one is not important enough for this honor, One is honored with carrying the Sefer, the Torah scroll, to and from the Hechal, the Ark. One needs to do this in a very specific way. Now, never having been very important, I've had this honor in other Spanish and Portuguese synagogues in London, in Amsterdam and Jerusalem and in New York, so I know the drill. You must hold the Sefer, the scroll, under its mantle, You must back away from the hechal, from the ark, turn exactly in the center of the stairs, and walk slowly, taking tiny steps, proceeding very, very, very slowly, and like a soldier around the synagogue while the choir sings, turning very precisely in very specific spots. Then you must hold the Torah at a precise angle while its belt is being unrolled, back away from it as it is lifted, bow to the reader and to the rabbi and to the Parnas, the president, step backward and sit down. Not only that, but you must stand and hold the Torah, the Sefer, while the Hashkabot, the memorial prayers are read in Portuguese, and the prayers for the government, the royal family, and the state of Israel are read without moving and certainly without jingling the bells in the slightest before you can then proceed around the synagogue and again return the Sefer to the Hechal. That was my simple task. The Gaza war was then occurring and Rabbi Abraham Levy OBE gave a mini-sermon while I stood there bowed under the weight of this Torah. He was and is the very Gilbert and Sullivan caricature of the spiritual leader of the Spanish Portuguese Jews congregation in the British Isles. Shoulders drooped, Talit draped, top hat, tilted slightly forward, lips pursed, eyes downcast, hands held limply but expressively in front, sonorously trilling his R's, particularly in the word friends, which was used several times. All I missed was him saying, we Sepharadim, my other favorite phrase of his, generally contrasted with you Ashkenazim. His sermon that took about 20 minutes, after which he read two Tehillim psalms, sonorously, slowly, in both English and Hebrew. I was deathly afraid he would try to read them in Portuguese as well, but God is merciful. By the end, I could not feel my right wrist, and thus became the first and hopefully the only London casualty of the Gaza War. (laughs) <laughs> By the time this ordeal was over, you can imagine that I was ready to get the sefer back in the hechal. But no, there can be no haste in this. One needs to bring the sefer back, if anything, even more slowly and precisely than one took it out and delivered exactly as the choir sings the word bishalom. Hashem yivarech et amor bishalom with peace. So there I am, wrist, now pins and needles, collapsing, attempting the walk, which I know so well from New York and Amsterdam and Jerusalem and other places in London. And I'm thinking, I'm doing this rather well, considering that I am an Ashkenazi dog. <laughs> but it is not excruciatingly slow enough for Rabbi ween and I can hear him behind me hissing sotto voce but in a voice I'm convinced that every pure Sephardi in the room can hear small steps Dr. Epstein small steps like a lady (laughs) truly classic so in a way that story encapsulates for me what it's like to be in that synagogue, I would dare and call it a shul. Now I, as some of you know, come from a Hasidish background, and I, you know, Hasidish yid, we're fairly comfortable in shul, right? It's like, you know, uh, you, people wonder, why do ultra-Orthodox people talk so much in synagogue? Where's the dignity, where's all that? It's like, if you go to visit God once a year, you wanna be very careful about <laughs> her sensibilities, you know? But if you're, if, if you're visiting God every three times a day, it's like, you know, your living room, you're in God's living room, right? So people are a little bit, Uh, fast and loose about stuff and I've been doing that drill all my life and so there's something compelling about these people and their sense of order which is a different sort of sense of order from German Reform Judaism and its trajectory. The Sephardim as Rabbi Joe Dweck who is their current spiritual leader, a Syrian, another story I tell you about Syrian Jews, that's a whole, that's a whole other kettle of fish, right? A Syrian from Brooklyn who became uh, Rabbi Levy's successor. As Rabbi Joe Dweck says continuously, the Spadim are the first truly Orthodox and truly modern Jews. They are the first modern Orthodox Jews. And within that modern Orthodoxy there is a particular style. This is evident in some of the earliest depictions of Spadim, particularly in the work of Bernard Picard's Ceremonie et Coutume de tout le peuple de la monde, which is his, um, his seven-volume illustrated work that shows all the religious traditions of the world in 1733. Fascinating, fascinating book, and if you collect Judaica or you've been to Judaica museums, you may have seen some of these illustrations. They're very famous. In fact, many people know only the Jewish illustrations from Picard. Now, the illustration that you see here, it's kind of hard to see, I'm sorry, is of an Ashkenazi wedding, and it occurs outdoors. There's a little band of people sitting in the front playing music, the rabbi is kind of, um, is, is, has a pointy beard. Um, there's a couple of youth, you know, youth, right? A couple of youths sitting on the roof, right? Um, the impression one gets in general from this outside non-Jewish observer is that this is a context in which people are sort of comfortable and relaxed, sort of like the Hasidim I told you about. His depiction of a Sephardi wedding, however, is very different. There is much more elegant accoutrement. There is an indoor ceremony under a baldachin, under a canopy, as one would have for, uh, let's say, a king or a queen. The bride is seated, right. Um, there are servants. Uh, an orchestra plays, but in the distance, right. It's a very sort of different sensibility between the two weddings. And already in 1733, Picard is is illustrating this community of Spardim in Amsterdam. Having been expelled from Spain in 1492, many of these Jews went to Amsterdam having first converted to Catholicism and then converting back in Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam becoming extremely successful in mercantile professions. In fact, if you've heard about the Dutch East India Company the colonizers of the eastern part of the United States in the 17th century, their board of directors consisted of people who were essentially Western Spartan, most of them converted to Catholicism, not yet deconverted, right? Um, Which is why when Jews came to America and Governor Peter Stuyvesant didn't want to let them into New York, a quick letter to the gentleman of the Dutch East India Company proved successful in getting him to relent, right? So it's a very, it was really, if there ever was a time where you could talk about, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? And people sort of running the known universe, it was Jews in, Sephardic Jews in Amsterdam in the 17th century. Here's the Sephardic synagogue during the blowing of the um, shofar on, um, on Rosh Hashanah And you see people sort of listening in meditative, contemplative positions. The whole thing though is sort of light. There's a subdued atmosphere, very different from Picard's depiction of Ashkenazic Jews. It's darker, there's more candles, everybody's hunched. Some people are actually sitting on the floor as if it's Tisha B'Av, right? The ninth of Av and not Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There's a real, um, there's a real uh, contrast. Also, if you look at his Sephardic interiors, this is a pijon Haben, the redemption of a firstborn son. Um, and you see uh, the, um, sorry, you see the, um, the, uh, the mother sitting here with her, uh, mother or mother-in-law and the father and the kohen very elegantly dressed and servants and portraits of ancestors, right? Not only is there a nurse here with the cradle, but there's a little African boy or North African boy, Moorish boy here, whose sort of indicates the status of these people. It was a very sort of high status group. The first synagogue they built was called the Esnoga, the, or the Snoga, the synagogue uh, in Amsterdam. And it's significant that they got a very well known non-Jewish architect, Elias Bauman, to begin in 1671 and to complete in 1675. Now, this is not, the synagogue but it is a depiction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem from 1665 while um, um, 1665 remember the synagogue was finished in 1675 the synagogue itself note these piers very distinctive down here the synagogue itself was built to look like people then imagined Solomon's temple I don't know if you've been to Amsterdam. It is a huge barn like building, right? With really beautiful details, including here's Picard's depiction of the holy ark, the Hechau, and you can compare it to uh, a photograph, right? You can see when when Picard depicted furniture, at least, he was fairly um, accurate. This synagogue is interestingly has a floor covered with sand um, in the old Dutch tradition to observe absorb dust, moisture, and dirt from shoes and to muffle the noise. Only five synagogues in the world, you may know, have a sand floor and this is the only one with such a floor surviving outside the Caribbean. You might have visited a synagogue in Curacao. I don't know. Anybody visit that synagogue, the Sephardic synagogue? In Sy- it has sand on the floor. There was one in Suriname that also had sand, that synagogue was moved wholesale to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem where it <laughs> resides now with fresh sand on the floor. Right? That's one of its characteristics. It's a beautiful building. Before the war, there were 40 people employed to light the candles on Yom Kippur. Right really a magnificent and elegant building and it was a wonder of the world in its own time with Picard illustrating one of the only double page spreads in his ten volumes, the inauguration of the synagogue, including non-Jewish guests coming in to watch. It was truly a phenomenon and it's very hierarchical. The last time the synagogue was actually used for for prayer, now they use a small synagogue on Shabbat and this synagogue only on the High Holidays. I was there one of the last times and there was barely a minyan, there was barely a prayer quorum, yet I, not being a Sephardi, was required to sit in a special section, right? (laughs) So there's this, right, there's this sort of segregationalist mentality. So famous it was that Edward de Witt, famous painter of church interiors, very well known like Vermeer for his use of light and depiction of shadow, here's a church interior by Vermeer, also painted the synagogue. Not only did he paint the synagogue, but like Picard, he showed all these non-Jews visiting the synagogue in the front. In other words, it wasn't simply the synagogue itself, but it was the phenomenon of the publicity that the synagogue generated that was the thing. You know, your kids or grandkids, or maybe even you yourselves, maybe posting things on Facebook, and you wonder, what is this self-promotion? Here's a picture of me eating an ice cream Sunday. Here's just a picture of the ice cream. What is that about, you know? Well, it was going on in the 17th and 18th centuries also. The phenomenon of a building that was so incredibly Um, special, that people would come to look at it, was a subject worthy of depicting in art as well. Here's the women's gallery. Now this synagogue was home to a number of famous Jews, not the least of whom was Baruch Spinoza, who was put into cherem, excommunicated um, for his beliefs, um, his atheistic beliefs, and he was subject to an extremely um, undignified sort of excommunicated uh, s- ceremony by the Senores de Mahmad, the uh, Anche Mahmad, the gentleman of the, um, of the board, um, where he was stepped over and spat upon. Um, more recently, Spinoza has been rehabilitated. And uh, he was reinstated as a member posthumously. didn't do him any good, but the fact is that he didn't really care. So it's, it's okay. Um, another very, very famous... Uh, rabbi and member of the congregation is Menashe ben Israel, so famous that he was a uh, friend of Rembrandt's, maybe famous because he was a friend of Rembrandt's, who depicted him in this uh, etching. Uh, in 1649, he published a book, Spes Israel, La de Israel), um, uh, Hope of Israel in Spanish and Latin. Spanish and Latin, right? Not Hebrew, there's a Hebrew title there. Um, an English translation was published in London in 1650 and in this book, Menashe ben Israel tried to give learning, learned support through this printing to the idea that the Native Americans, the native inhabitants of America, American Indians, at the time of the European discovery were actually descendants of the Ten Lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> and for this and other Michigan theories about the Ten Lost <laughs> tribes of Israel, you'll have to come to the closing um, lecture in this series, which will be held at um, University Synagogue on Monday night.
0: Monday lunch.
1: Monday, lunch, Monday lunch, sorry. Now, all this speculation coming out of this Spanish-Portuguese synagogue had very real and political repercussions. Then Israel convinced Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, to bring the Jews who had been expelled in 1290 back to England. Right? So it had actual impact. And that's the kind of people, right? Sort of people who were learned and Meshuggah and, 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 and free thinking who were part of this congregation. Part of it has to do, I think I am convinced, with the fact that they had spent time in the outside world as Christians before returning to Judaism in Amsterdam, right? Some other views, procession of Lavim the sukkah, and what's interesting here is the sukkah is built very elegantly on the top of a home, and there's a gentleman observing the proceedings, who is Picard the engraver himself. Likewise, he shows himself sitting here, involved in a Passover meal, in very elegant settings, in which again, the Moorish servant is washing the dishes, right, at the table. Again, fascinating. Circumcision. Here, we have people attending a Sephardic circumcision among whom is a figure here who I'll blow up, you can see her a little better, wearing a prominent cross around her neck and looking directly at the little baby's penis, right? In other words, the fascination with non-Jews with this community evident. And of course, in this dedication image, again, to get a little closer, We see figures who are clearly not Jewish, they're wearing swords in the synagogue, mingling with and talking to the Jews in the synagogue. So the three important branches of the Western Sephardic Synagogue complex and Western Sephardic Rite are London, Amsterdam and New York. I've shown you a little bit of Amsterdam. I've spent most of my time in London, mostly in Lauderdale Road, because that's where the action happens now. Um, But Bevis Marks is the oldest uh, synagogue, 1701. It was built 40 years after the Jews were restored to England. And it is an imitation of the Amsterdam synagogue and itself tremendously elegant and beautiful and full of Um, iconographic, artistic interest, but also cultural interest. It has its own coat of arms. It has its own way of presenting the liturgy. The rabbis wear canonicals. These are Orthodox rabbis, they're not reform rabbis, right? They wear top hats, Uh, they wear what are called lappets, right? Um, And they wear robes and the whole of the synagogue is organized in a way that's different from both Ashkenazi synagogues and Eastern Sephardic synagogues. That is, the hechal, the Ark, which is triple in these synagogues, is in the front and the bima is all the way in the back. And that allows for a specific kind of activity, which is this processing that I described at the very beginning. In London too, there were many notable personalities. One of the most famous of these whom you will hear referred to later by Rabbi Levy, who I have some live footage, um, is Benjamin Disraeli. He was the first Earl of Baconsfield and served twice as Prime Minister. Um, He was a very um, uh, important and influential figure in world affairs. He he was a conservative, battled considerably with the Liberal Party leader. William Everett Gladstone was a favorite of Queen Victoria Um, He was born in London and his father was a member of the Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue of London, Bevis Marks, his seat is still there. And he left because he was asked to be president. Why should anyone decline such an honor? Anybody? (coughs) What do you think? The name of the president in Spanish-Portuguese right is Parnas. Anybody know Hebrew? Parnas, (coughs) Parnas, Parnosa, <coughs> right, Yiddish. He's the person who's required to raise the funds and finance the damn thing, right? Which is why I always think to myself, I'd love to be Ari Katz, right? Because I could do all this fun programming, but he's also the Parnas. He has to make sure that all of you do your duty and bring terrific scho- scholars to, um, to CSP, right? So his father, Disraeli's father, did not want to be Parnas, and so he left... And converted the family to Anglicanism um, Disraeli before that was a huge screw you right to the um, to the establishment right um, when when Disraeli was uh, twelve years old, although he was a great politician and an able one, he was always caricatured in the press as a Jew so here are two illustrations from Punch, one in which he sort of you know got this big nose and this and this um, and this frizzy hair which he had, um, but dressed like an elegant gentlemen, right? You know, you can dress him up, but you can't take them out. It's a mildly vicious caricature, and the other he's shown as an Eastern trader, right? uh, uh tried to entice Queen Victoria with his wares. Here's his father and grandfather, two, um, you know, uh, Sephardi gentlemen. Um, Sephardim are characterized by a number of things. One, they don't cover their heads in public any except if they're, sometimes if they're eating. Um, and they're orthodox again. Uh, they wear um, uh, tzitzit, they wear um, uh, um, uh, the four-cornered uh, garment with fringes, but they wear it inside of their clothes, they never wear it out. Um, they have certain usages and customs Uh, They will refer to the synagogue always as a synagogue. They don't have they don't have nicknames for it, like shul, right? Uh, And so it's very hard to distinguish this 18th and 19th century gentleman, Disraeli's grandfather and father, from any other 18th and 19th century uh, uh, English gentleman. Another famous, famous, among many famous um, uh, members of the community was Sir Moses Montefiore the greatest Jewish philanthropist of the 19th century, of Italian Jewish origin actually. Um, And he's the one who really was a toimech, who was a supporter of the Jewish community in Jerusalem, that downtrodden and uh, fairly um, uh, uh, depressed community in his time. He built the famous windmill, right, in order to help them sustain themselves and have a place to grind flour. He died at the age of 100. He's highly honored by the community. The cultural production of the Svardim in London is notable both internally and externally. So for instance, it seems like nothing today because we do it all the time, but they wrote the first English translation of the prayer book in history. And this is uh, the cover page of that Um, and it is based in its typography and its layout with the exception of the Hebrew, on the Book of Common Prayer from that time, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. They were also, this time, involved in a number of professions, including, unusually, this woman named Carolyn Gomez, who was a young lady, a daughter of one of the important um, members of the community, who became a painter. And this is a little miniature she did of herself. Very unusual to have female painters in the 18th century, and even more unusual to have Jewish ones, right? It's little miniature she did of herself. I must admit all her illustrations of women look like her but that's cute in a way and you see that she is painting on an easel an image and if she were a Christian painter it would probably be the virgin and child but it's not. It's Venus and Cupid because for Sephardic Jews um, in this era Greek mythology was not a religious threat, right? All the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, were dead. Nobody was worshipping Venus and Cupid. So classical subjects were appropriate game. And this is a lovely miniature. It's a locket. It's not a locket. It's a little, you know, pendant. It's about three inches um, large. There was another woman, another Gomez. A lot of Gomez's. If you go to... You know, if you go to New York in May, you should visit the Gomez mill house because some Gomez's came to New York and they established a, uh, a home up near where I live in, in Hudson Valley. Do you have plans to do that, Ari? We'll put that on the list. Okay, that's excellent. Um, there was another Gomez named Rebecca Gomez. Now, she was really, really, really important if you are a coffee feinschmecker. You know what feinschmecker is? <laughs> Somebody who really likes good stuff, a foodie. You know what foodies are, right? Okay. So... The first coffee shop in London was open and run by Rebecca Gomez. Here's her ad. Rebecca Gomez has for sale at the chocolate Manufactory number no. 40 upper end Nassau Street, it was the coffee houses on Nassau Street between commissary butlers and the brick meeting. Super fine warranted chocolate, wholesale and retail white wine vinegar by the cask or the single gallon, spursetti oil and common lamp, ditto, right? All of these things, playing cards and here is Rebecca Gomez in her coffee house. All these gentlemen drinking coffee and getting buzzed, right? That was the thing, you know. Coffee was a drug in those days. It still is for me. Um, and underneath images, so what's on the wall? Not religious images. Uh, a, a, a woman flirting with a man, old lady flirting with a young man, a, a knight and a landscape. And this w- was actually painted by a Jew. So the Sephardim have always been sort of in you know, in current life. Uh, even when they're dressed in their canonicals, right, uh, and they look like something out of the 19th century, they're, they're very much involved in current life in London, and many of the uh, principles of the Sephardic um, uh, community, for instance, this uh, young rabbi, uh, have day jobs in the city, in finance. Um, they eventually moved to Lauderdale Road in London, which is the synagogue that I know. It was built in a Moorish style, um, to distinguish itself from churches, and yet, and yet, it has a rose window, right? It is pretty churchy uh, inside. Uh, beautiful wood, 19th century synagogue. You should visit it. If anybody wants connections in the Western Sephardic community, I will, I will uh, connect you. Now, what I like most about the Sephardim is their ceremonial and musical traditions. You will think about what they do on the model, in a way, of Anglican Christianity. When I give my talk on music on uh, next Sunday at CBI, CBI at 7 PM. 7 p.m., I'll be giving some examples of comparison between, among other things, Western Sephardic music and Georgian Christian church music. Right? Um, there are close connections. Sephardim love to process. Whether in Amsterdam, here you have the Chatan Torah and the Chatan Bereshit, the man who finishes the Torah and begins the Torah and Simchat Torah, and you have people going before them with torches and moving back the crowd, you know, they love to process, they love to have choirs. I'm actually an unofficial member of the choir of the the Lauderdale Road Synagogue, which means every time I go there, I'm asked to participate. And I want to take a little bit of your time to give you a flavor by showing you pieces of the ceremony for the 350th anniversary of the readmission of the Jews to London. You will see the prime minister, then Tony Blair, being led into the synagogue. You will see the choir singing, the ark being opened, Rabbi Levy giving as, as much of a sermon as I could stand. I cut most of it out. Um, and, and other things. So this, is, this will be, I hope, of interest to you. And I hope that we will be able to hear it. About eight minutes. This is how you, there's Jonathan Sachs, Chief Rabbi of England. This is how you would come in to the synagogue, you get a sense of it. That's the entourage of the Prime Minister, the Lord Mayor. That's Tony Blair with his nice yarmulke.
2: Welcome you all to a service of celebration of 350 years this is a of continuous Jewish life in this country. We are particularly proud that this service is being held in the presence of the Prime Minister Tony Blair. The synagogue at Bevis Marks was opened in 1701, 45 years after the readmission of the Jews to England, and we believe today is the first time in its history that a Prime Minister has attended one of our services, unless, of course, we give credence to the apocryphal story that Benjamin Disraeli, who was born a member of this synagogue and who described himself as the blank page between the Old and New Testament, would quietly come to the courtyard outside to listen to our prayers on the eve of the Day of Atonement. We have just sung the Hallel, psalms of praise and thanks to God, which a Jew recites on festivals and moments of happiness. We have sung it today to thank God for 350 happy years that the Jews have enjoyed in this country. Is there another Jewish community in Europe that can boast of such a blessing? Which other European country has a synagogue dating from 1701, where Jewish prayer has never ceased to be recited in freedom and tranquility.
1: So, before opening the ark, that's
0: Rabbi Elia.
1: tune you may know which is a Sephardic tune from London So you get the idea, right? It's a very constructed kind of service, and it's very 18th century Georgian in its musical origins. However, however, there are moments at which the Sephardi, the Spanish in the originary content makes its way to the surface. And one of those moments is during the Kaddish, and I'm going to try to hit this correctly. Um, So, one second, bear with me. Okay. This is um, Adam Musikant, who's one of the cantors there, uh, singing the Kaddish, and you will hear Spain in it. Hopefully. Aww. Here we go. <laughs> Sense, right? That this is a different type of liturgy. It's a minor key. It's a Phrygian mode. It's distinctively Spanish. That gives you an example of how the liturgy is, um, uh, works. Um, there is, of course, a Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in New York. Did any of you visit when you went to New York? Um, uh, this was with Ari's trip, you guys? Yeah. Okay. So you know that it's on Central Park West. It has windows designed by Tiffany on the inside. Um, it is a much later building. There were, the earliest uh, building of Sharit Israel in New York was in 1654. This building is from 1897. But again, it is modeled on, ultimately on the Amsterdam synagogue. And it's a, it's a, it's a large... Uh, building that is still lit by gas lamps around the bimah in which the Torahs for instance in the Ark are arranged in a very elegant manner. They're all of a uniform kind of, um, of clothing. There's a small synagogue as well and this is the furniture that was used by this congregation during the civil, uh, the, uh, the Revolutionary War. So you have to realize this is a congregation in New York that has seen the conflict between royalists and independent people during the Revolutionary War. Can you imagine? I'm sure in your congregations there are people now who are going to vote for Trump and people who are going to vote for Hillary and that will make a tremendous impact on the future of the country. Imagine if there were people in your congregation, some of whom were voting to stay with England, right, and some of them who were voting for a UNEXIT, you know, um, for the United (laughs) States, right, to exit during the Revolutionary War. In fact, British troops shot through the window of the synagogue and damaged one of the Torah scrolls in the Ark. Um, Fascinating, again, during the Civil War Right, half the congregation, because the North, you know, slavery was uh, was not uh, illegal in the North until quite late. We think of the South as the center of slavery, but people had slaves in the North. There were pro-slavery and abolitionist forces in the same congregation, right, as in many congregations in America. But this is one of the oldest ones. Um, And, of course, the cemetery itself is very um, cool. It's down in Chinatown. You can see the first cemetery with um, memorials for people who died fighting in the Revolutionary War. What I find especially interesting is that um, the American Jews, even though, you know, it was a brave new world, um, assimilated well the Sephardic Jews into the wider world of American culture. So here's a little clipping from a newspaper from um, uh, 1766, I believe, and it has the poet's corner with this bad poem, would you each earthly bliss enjoy which bounteous heaven doth give and pleasure which can never cloy, they in contest all live. Terrible poem, right? And on the other side, just landing, right? Um, These goods that are coming in by ship, this is a regular newspaper, and in the center, Right? Just received to be sold at Eliezer Oswald's printing office, price, ten shillings, a few copies of prayers for Sabbath, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, the Sabbath, the beginning of the year, to be sold, blah, 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 at a particular coffee house. Right there in the newspaper, advertisement for Sidurim and Machsorim. Very well integrated community. In fact, the first American prayer book in 1766 was printed by John Holt in New York City um, for Isaac Pinto, who was a Western Sephardic Jew. You might have heard about the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, that famous synagogue um, uh, to which George Washington wrote his letter saying, to bigotry, no sanction, to persecution, no assistance. Um, It is the old oldest synagogue building still standing in the United States, the oldest surviving synagogue in North America, and it is a Western Sephardic building. And then finally, far-flung places, Curacao, Mikveh Emanuel 1730, a beautiful building typical of Curacao, yellow paint on the outside, white walls, shutters, but sand on the floor. This is one of those um, five synagogues in the world uh, in which sand is found on the floor. And in France, there are, among the many Arab Jews, there are Western Sephardim too, particularly in Marseille. I don't know if you've been to the synagogue on Rue Boucher. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful place. Um, I was just in Florence. There's a Western Sephardic synagogue. There was a large community in Montreal. Uh, I love this. Um reach Israel of Montreal, their 125th anniversary today. The Spanish and Portuguese Jews of Montreal in one of the illustrated newspapers. Right? The material culture, we talked a little bit about the liturgy in the synagogue culture, is also particularly rich. Um, Accoutrements of the Torah scroll are very important. And it really was the Western Sephardim who, you know, have you ever looked at a Torah scroll and said to yourself, that looks like a little person, right? Little legs, little, right? It's dressed up in a little uniform, right? The way Western Sephardim hold the Torah scroll and dress it is very much in the manner of a little person, and we'll get back to that in a second. High degree of ornamentation, use of the Portuguese language. This is a a, a Jewish text in Portuguese, hand calligraphed. And in the synagogue, these magnificent Torah um, mantles, which evoke things like the high priest's garment with bells and pomegranates sewn into the bottom. Now, where did this come from? Jews of the East put their Torahs in wooden cases. Jews in the West and in Eastern Europe put their Torahs in sort of sleeves, as we have them in most congregations. But this idea of a mantle that's sort of open in the front and looks like a cloak, I believe, comes directly from the tradition of processional virgins in Catholicism. right? So you have the Virgin Mary dressed up this way. And the comparisons are very apt and, and, and obvious. And, and it's yet another sort of vestige of Catholicism, this practice. Rabbi Levy, who you saw talking about Disraeli, really, Israeli, et cetera, he told me, I haven't seen it, he said, Mark, if you look closely in the synagogue, you will see that some people upon Kissing and releasing their tzitziot, their fringes on their garment, they will touch their head and the two sides of their chest as if they're crossing themselves. That still remains in that community till this day. Um, I want to just close with a couple of other views of these wonderful mantles. This one has the coat of arms of Moshe Montefiore. That Jews should have coat of arms is one thing, right? Secondly, to put them on the Torah scroll in the synagogue. But beautiful, beautiful objects. So to summarize, Sephardim have been patriots of wherever they have been, Amsterdam, New York, London, any place they've been, they've been very strong members of the community. I mean, Rabbi Levy's sermon was nationalistic in the extreme. Of course, the prime minister was sitting there. But they've also been Sephardim. And I think you could illustrate that with particular customs and particular liturgical habits and particular music. And they've been both modern and orthodox. And so to conclude, I would like to play the end of this ceremony for the readmission of the Jews. God save the queen in Hebrew. Watch for Tony Blair's smile. something very charming about this. You know, in the Reconstructionist prayer book, there was always my country tis of thee, or the star spangled Banner. Orthodox Jews in America don't do these things, right? They sort of keep religion and state liturgically separate, except for the prayer for the government. But Western Sephardic Orthodox Jews very much hold to this. Now, bendigamos the Portuguese, written in Hebrew letters, hymn of all Sephardim, everywhere originating in Amsterdam. Bendigamos, Bendigamos al Altissimo el, Altissimo, el Altissimo, el Señor que nos crió, démosle grande que que me me eto. Alabado sea su sante nombre, porque siempre, porque siempre nos, nos apiado, ha ha Lo ad al Señor que es bueno para siempre no se me
2: olvide.
1: Thank you very much. I've I've left some time to to, to to answer questions and fill you in. Anybody have any questions? Yes, yeah, say your name so I know who you are. My name is Eve. Hi, Eve. Hi. Um, it just seems to be
0: very end that it seemed. Um, Could, can we hear the other Go ahead. It seemed I was
1: hearing Spanish rather than Portuguese. Right. So it's it's it, it, I, I I said I meant. Spanish. I said it is part of the Spanish and Portuguese liturgy, but it is, it's not Spanish, it's Judeo-Español. It's like it's uh, some, you know, they, they, they're just as, as uh, Judeo-German, Yiddish, right, or Judeo-Italquid. Yes, a, the, it is Spanish, I, I stand corrected. Anybody else? Corrections, questions? Yes, you are? Yes, hi. I can't hear you, I'm sorry. No, I didn't, and I should have, yes. The yes. lawsuit between Shariq Israel and
0: Tarah Yes. On the belt. Yes. They're, they're, they're,
1: so uh, the gentleman says, I didn't mention Mikvah Israel in, in uh, Philadelphia, and I didn't mention the lawsuit currently going on about the Meyer Meyer Silver between those two communities. I also didn't mention uh, the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World or, um, or the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So there's a, there's, a limited, there's a limited amount that one can mention, but there's, there's I didn't mention many, many things that are even more relevant to the discussion. However, Mikveh Israel is a wonderful congregation in Philadelphia you should visit. It's in a modern synagogue that bears some of the accoutrements of the earlier synagogues. Um, uh, And they're having a dispute because one of the great um, Sephardic Jews of the 18th century in Philadelphia was a fellow named Meyer Myers, who was a uh, silversmith. He was in Philadelphia, sometimes in New York. And there's a set of Torah bells that are worth quite a lot of money that is in dispute between the two congregations. But just to put your minds at ease, the Sephardim are very, the Western Sephardim are very orderly. They're also very contentious between each other, right? So for years, Rabbi Angel, who was, he was a wonderful guy at, um, at. um year. Oh, is he gonna be here? Oh, he's great. He, um, he was on the co- conversion um, panel for my, my wife. I'm especially proud of that since the Israeli rabbinate doesn't accept his conversions. Um, so I'm very glad, to, very glad to support his conversions. And when she came out of the mikvah, he said to her, the Jewish people is very lucky to have you, which I thought was very beautiful. So, and I know him for years. So he's at Shirith Yisrael. And he and Rabbi Levi didn't speak to each other for years because of a variety of disputes. Two Jews, three opinions. You know how it is. Anything else I didn't mention? Yes, go ahead. Uh, what do you think about the recent decision of the uh, chief rabbinate of Israel not to acknowledge the conversion of the chief
2: orthodox rabbi in New York?
1: Well, I, there's, there, first of all, there's no chief orthodox rabbi in New York. You're referring to the, the Luckstein incident. Um, I think Luckstein uh, almost disqualified himself for many other reasons, but he de-disqualified himself. Uh, but I won't go there. I don't one second. I don't think I am not I don't I have no opinion on that except uh, that I do have an opinion but I don't want to discuss it uh, in this context. Yes.
0: So my my father,
1: this is that uh, this is Ezra by the way. Hi Ezra. Yay. Hey. Hey. He, he
0: enjoyed the lecture. He I could see. It. Yeah. Yeah, like most of you,
1: like most of you. That was really yeah.
0: So here's the question. So a bunch of us did go to New York and we about the history of American Judaism, and that's why we know that in 1654 the Sephardim, uh, the first Jews, were Spartan from Recife, in Brazil. Correct. They're the ones who started the shul that we right. saw in the documentary. But um, if you read the history of the Western Sephardim, they fit in so well to the societies, and they did so well in societies in which they. Um, entered that they have disappeared almost. I mean, uh, that's the question: Have they disappeared? They seem to have intermarried and kind of. Some of them, but so most of they're there. They're quiet. P- people? There's
1: a hundred people in Shul on any given Shabbos, and they're not tourists. Um, you know, I, I think I think they've assimilated. Um, At the same rates as any successful, any other successful Jewish community. I think um, maybe there are more sort of visible uh, Western scholars who who assimilated like Disraeli, you know, and others. Um, But I'm not sure that um, that uh, that success and assimilation are always um, correlated unequivocally. I think that, that, that these are strong communities. The one that's in London now is particularly strong. Uh, Amsterdam is in decline since the war. Amsterdam's very sad. You know, so you go to the synagogue in Amsterdam, and it's basically a bunch of guys who were there because their parents said, we are being deported to concentration camps. You're going to orphanages. We're giving you the keys. You better open this synagogue and keep it open and keep it alive no matter what and they feel you know a lot of them feel very pressured and very guilty and and it's it can be it's not it's can be a sad place to be um new york and london on the contrary you know new york hired a an Ashkenazi rabbi um but not because they weren't qualified Sephardi rabbis because they were willing to try something different and i think that um alongside the assimilationist tendency of successful um, Western Sephardic Jews. There's also a tendency among Western Sephardic Jews to want to be a part of modernity and that's why they have and they will survive. Excellent question. I applaud all of you. I wish you a good Shabbos and hope to see
2: you at the other programs. Thank you.